With traffic, errands, and parking, cars can be a chore. But a great car can be an adventure, a getaway, and a prized possession. Whatever your budget or family require, there's a car out there you'll love. We're here to help you find it. I'm Todd. I'm Paul. And this is the Everyday Driver Car Debate. I am thrilled to say that roads are open. Roads are open. I actually got the chance this weekend. I said to my son, do you want to go for a really good drive in the Lotus? Because I knew that our favorite road that we've shot multiple episodes of Mm -hmm. TV on, it's called Wolf Creek. We shot the uh, Generations of the Miata up there. We shot the recently released on YouTube rivalry piece, which was the Camaro ZL1 and the 350R Mustang was up there and others. It's an amazing road. We typically don't drive it if we're not shooting it. But it just yeah. opened in like the last week. I know that seems insane, but the top of it's like nine nine thousand feet. When we drove through the top, the snow plow had been through, but there were still ten feet of snow on the sides. That's amazing. But yet at the bottom it it feels like what it is. It feels like it's practically June. You know, so amazing. we had the top off, Fantastic. we did that. It was like a hundred miles worth of driving and it's very cool because I loved it, of course. Because yeah. I'm the Lotus. Well so does he. But I'm what's so cool is to be done and he's like, Dad, thanks for going. Which oh, is that's cool. cool. That's very cool. It's very, very fun. Right on. I'm glad you guys got a chance to go and uh, wear some earplugs, you know, together. We, we both have earplugs in the car. I he know knows where his are stored. We put earplugs in. That's funny. Because the car is just that loud. But we have a, <laughs> we have a blast. <laughs> well, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate all your patronage. And hopefully you've been catching the output on YouTube. We did drive both the 2.0 and 3 liter Supras. That's been playing well and a lot of good comments and yeah. interesting stuff on there. So if you're asking about the prices on the Supras, mm-hmm. the price embargo lifts June 17th, 2020 for both those cars. A month so after they wanted us talking that. about them. Yeah, kind of interesting. That's insane, isn't it? Yeah. Couldn't talk about them then. But uh, the YouTube output and fast blast will continue. We've got a slate of press cars all mm-hmm. lined up mm-hmm. on the calendar more coming your way as well so this is in the in the vein of shopping just cars yeah, we totally. want to know about everything in the vein of shopping well because we talk to you it's guys cool. about everything and so as yeah. a result what's nice when we first started the show we were very enthusiast focused but because of this podcast and you guys writing to us about let's be honest every kind of car imaginable mm-hmm. what's great yeah. is we've been able to go to manufacturers and just say what have you got and so right. we're driving right. it all now uh, now the downside let's be honest the downside is youtube wants to watch the supra not the latest minivan from so-and-so. Correct. But we yes. want to cover it all because we want to be able to talk about it with you guys. So it's great that we have a lot of stuff coming. This week, actually, we have the Honda Ridgeline. The Oddball Truck is coming this Thursday. Happy Tuesday, by the way. This Thursday, that is coming. And also, speaking of Thursday, mm. we're going to record a podcast on Thursday for Friday that is not typical. Yeah. I'm just putting it out there right now. It is going to be a road trip podcast while Paul and I are in our big sedans shooting a piece on the big sedans. We're going to podcast with you guys. Yes. Well, this is also a little bit of a different podcast. For Topic Tuesday, we're going to be talking with Frank Meekum of Meekum Auctions. He grew up in the family business. He lives the collector car auction business. And then we've got all questions, so no Mm -hmm. debate on this one. But uh, first of all, I want you to hear about Dana Meekum's 33rd Original Spring Classic. It's scheduled for July 10th through the 18th, 2020 in Indianapolis. And it's highlighted by a man named John Atzbach, John Atzbach, his collection and includes additional three days, 500 consignments. So it's almost 2,500 cars, 2,500 cars. That's insane. They, they added is. three days to this show That's just and bumped it by 500 consignments. Wow. So now as part of this whole collection, Meekab is auctioning the 1965 Shelby GT350R prototype, mm. which is the first R model ever built. 
and was also driven by Ken Miles at Green Valley Raceway on February 14th, 1965, which is notable because that's the first time any Shelby Mustang was entered into a sanctioned competitive event. Mm. Apparently, Miles got the car airborne, completely airborne, during that race, <laughs> which is... Something. Yes. Other significant Mustangs being auctioned include a 1966 Shelby GT350 convertible, which is one of four, mm. and a 1966 Shelby GT350 Paxton Fastback, one of 11 built with a factory supercharger. And so Frank is joining wow. the podcast to educate us about the auctions and the company Meekum Auctions itself. As a matter of fact, he's calling in right now. Frank. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hey, good. You got both of us on here, both Todd and Paul on. Oh, hi, Todd. How are you? We're doing great, man. We're doing great. Thanks for being on with us. Yeah. No, this is great. Thanks for calling in. We've got so many questions. We've actually never on the podcast before had somebody from an auction house, anybody, yeah, or an auctioneer. Are you an auctioneer yourself, by the way? I am not. I am not. But you play one on TV just, just for fun? That's exactly it. I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. There you go. <laughs> there, there you go. Perfect. If only they were a sponsor, that did, it would have been perfect. <laughs> I but I really do like that anyway. That's awesome. Well, thanks for jumping on. We've, Like I said, we've got a ton of questions for you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we just want to hear cool stories from you and you know talk to our audience about some interesting things that are going on. You've got an, a lot of upcoming events, as a mm -hmm. matter of fact, and we want to ask you about a few cars out of some various collections that are coming up, but also just tell the audience about the auction process because I watch the auctions. I mm -hmm. go to to as mm -hmm. many as I can. We travel to Monterey and we go to the auctions there. We come see you guys. And I'm just curious if you could start off by telling the audience just the auction process. If you wanted to jump in and bid, because a lot of people associate auctions with the very high dollar cars. For and sure. you got to be really rich and you've got to have everything in a row. What if you just wanted to come in and bid and buy a $10,000 car or something like that? Well, right down the auction process. Well, that's that's the biggest misnomer that it's only for the top one percent of the world that can do these collector car auctions. I mean, our Kissimmee auction is the uh, is the best example where we get three thousand cars. I mean, this mm -hmm. year Kissimmee, mm -hmm. uh, we had cars sell in the five to ten thousand dollar range, and then the uh, the bullet brought uh, over three million dollars. Oh, so that's right, it, the bullet. Yeah, we have something for everybody. I like that it it can be that broad because again, as Paul's saying, we've been to stuff at Pebble Beach, and of course, that is a whole thing where you're just like, wow, it's, you're it's operating a different in level. a different category. I'm but sure Amelia same, is the same way. It's just a yeah. whole different. You know, you're in awe. You're just there to watch the spectacle. But, you know. But let me flip it around the other way. What's what's the requirement for someone to put their car in an auction? Because I also think the perception works the opposite way, and that is, unless I have some huge collector car and it's one of six, I why would I go to an auction? If you're a seller, what's how easy is the process there? We get that email here every week. Is my car good enough for your auction? And the answer mm. is yes. Really? We want everybody to be involved. We think this, you know, our business model is we're a company for everybody. Everybody's included. We treat the little guy, the same as the big guy. And that's how our brand has been built and become so successful is, is we have something for everybody and we promote to everybody. I don't care if you have a $2,000 little Corvair Monza. It's it's something for somebody and somebody is going to want it. Everybody's included and we, we create a business model that our auctions are built that we can have something for everybody. I'm glad to hear that, honestly. And I know our yeah. audience is glad to hear that, too, because, like I said, sometimes I've watched auctions and I'm just going, oh, my gosh. And I know you guys get some really high dollar cars and really exclusive lots. And I do want to talk about that. But it's funny because I've seen 
cars that cross the auction block that the current crowd doesn't seem to appreciate as much. And it goes for much less than I ever thought it would. Mm. And uh, Todd drives a, a Lotus Elise. Yes, I do. And there was a Lotus Elise uh, a while back and it crossed an auction block. And I thought, don't you people know what this is? Why is it going for more money? <laughs> and then uh, an E30 BMW M3 that sold for like 30 grand. I'm going, all right, maybe is this more of the hot rod crowd? Is this more yeah. of the exotics or the imports crowd? You know, do, do you see a wide variety of people at every event? I think every event has its own little uh, demographic. Um, you're going to see some cars do better in, at a certain venue than you than they will do at another. So mm-hmm. you, you just got to spot that. Tell us to people all the time. You know, you have these big auctions. There's still going to be a good buy every once in a while. If you stand there long enough, not every car is going to do. That's what keeps everybody coming. It, it's the addiction yeah. part. Yeah. you know, Because of I the might... expectations. You think, all right, this yeah. is going to sell for this much, and then it doesn't. People are going, what? What happened? That then the next you get a car that everybody's standing there, well, why did it do that much? How sure. Did, <laughs> yeah. Why? It works both ways. And that's why people do auctions, because they have that chance. Yeah. Uh, 90% of the time, a car is going to bring within 4 or 5% of actual value. But then you get the big home runs, and then you get the – so that's – and that's part of the, that's part of the appeal to, to the auction. It gets into auction fever, right? And then it goes nuts? <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, it's an addiction. Do you encourage people to control their emotions or is the whole point to experience the rush? I mean, what do you tell people when they're standing next to you and, you know, you're sort of waiting for their answer? And I get it just watching on Mm -hmm. television, Mm -hmm. not to mention in person. You know, it depends on the car, of course. But are you trying to calm people down or are you not trying to calm people down? (laughs) We want people to have fun. So we want people to get involved and be excited and to have fun. That's that's our brand. That's the, the type of auction we have. We see other places that it, it's not as much, but that's that's us. That's, that's how good to hear. That's, that's what we want in our cars, and that's what we want people to get out of there. So that's very cool. I'm curious about this. It's kind of a behind the scenes question, but obviously you watch these auctions, and you've got the guys talking about every car that rolls up. How big is the army of people? doing the research oh. and providing the info and how, what's the, what's that chain of information because obviously nobody's pulling that out of their head so how is that done when you're talking about the guys that are the the tv crew when you talk about john Craman and you actually get to talk to john about cars there is no one behind john and he is not doing anything okay. i bow to him with his car knowledge he mm. knows so much more about cars than anybody i've ever met Wow. It's just oh, wow. solely based upon the years of knowledge built up and yeah, seen just, under the hoods of just, so many cars. Just a bond when it comes to, to car knowledge. Okay. I've, I've said this before, and I, I said I've never met anybody who knows everything about cars. Does he get close? <laughs> the closest I've ever seen. There will be no one that will ever be able to do that, sure. but he's the closest I've ever seen. Wow, wow, wow. Well, when you're dealing with numbers like this, I mean, I know you've got this auction coming up uh, that's got 2,500 cars. You, you just talked about Kiss Me that had uh, 3,000 cars. Just, Amazing. okay, how many of those are you guys, or are you dealing with any of them transport-wise? Are all the owners bringing them separately? No, that's that's a little bit of everything. And that's, we got into, you know, we got into the transport business three years ago now. Um, we'll be bringing in cars. Uh, sellers will be bringing in their own cars. Uh, they'll have other people bring them in. It's a little bit of everything. So it's, it's such a wide array of how the cars get there. Well, follow-up question to that, Frank, and that is when you're sourcing cars from sellers, how does that work? Do your people who work for Meekum, do you have to go out and travel and visit private collections or garages or 
do barn finds or whatever that is, do you have to go and research and then, all right, we don't quite know all the provenance and the history of this particular car. We got to go research it. How much travel is everybody doing? And then are you ultimately sort of corralling everybody from a well, people that want to auction their cars with you, know, you? We're very lucky that we have uh, a lot of the consignments come directly to us. We've built a company policy around not cold calling people. That's not been a model that we've ever tried to uh, go after. We just think people have a better experience when it was they made the initial contact. And mm-hmm. the answer to the travel part, that's the best part of the job. Going to see car collections and this special <laughs> car, that special car, mm. it's, it's the best part of the job. And meeting the people and getting to know the different stories and make the different relationships, talk cars a little bit, just to forget about the outside world. We've certainly found that. Tell us about this big collection coming up in July. The main attraction for Indy is going to be the uh, John Otzbach collection. John's put together, it's hard to explain, but every one of his cars would be the cornerstone of most people's collection. It's just car after car. You know, he's got the the flying Mustang, the GT350R prototype. And with the Shelby movie coming out and all the Ken Miles, Ken Miles really coming to the forefront mm-hmm. of more than just car guys. You know, before, you know, you walked down the street, most people wouldn't have even heard of Ken Miles. But now with the movie, that car's just gotten such a big push. One of the four GT350 66 convertibles just Every one of his cars is wow. is special. Okay, amazing. Now I'm not as familiar with John. Do you? What's his background? And you know, kind of a follow up question: What is the reason that collectors, car enthusiasts, get rid of and divest themselves of collections as significant as these, rather than handing them down to their families? I think a lot of people. There's different reasons, but the the biggest reason I've always seen. This is me personally. My favorite part of it is the hunt, is tracking down the car, finding the car, doing the history of the car, proving the car what it is. And he's done that over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. And then it's time to start over and do it again. Interesting. So that's that's what I see as the, the biggest reason, not a monetary reason or it's just the thrill of the chase is is a big reason for most people wanting to stay in the game. They run out of space or have so many cars. And so they do a sale and, and with the world of auctions and over the last 10 years, auctions becoming so vogue in our world, not just in cars and everything, mm-hmm. you just want to be a part of it. It's almost like pursuing a theme as like this collection is clearly built around very a theme. much so pursuing a theme yes. and curating a collection and then going, okay, I've done it. Now I'm going to move on to whatever the next, who knows what the next right. theme is, that's but, but that's an interesting yep. approach. Well, what's John's background? Does he have a connection to Carol and Ken from days long past or what was his pursuit of this collection? Growing up a car guy, uh, you get drawn to a certain aspect of mm. world. And once you start assembling, and then some guys just take it to that next level and assemble the best of the best. And not only did he do it in the cars, but he collected the biggest and best Shelby collection of memorabilia and collectibles that we've ever seen. Mm. Wow. And you're right. Some of these cars just- are beyond significant. We've you know, talked about it with Chance, our in-house Shelby and Cobra and Mustang, all things expert. He's looking at some of the cars you've got listed here and just going, you've got to be kidding me. So They've got that car yeah. auctioned off? Oh, my gosh. It's Yeah, like you said, yeah. a cornerstone. Like I said, every one of his cars would be 
the lead of anybody else's collection. So I'm curious, shifting a little bit from there, but it's but it's related to all of these. What's the craziest car you guys have ever sold? Either either how the auction went down, or I can't believe that car is here. What what standouts for you? Oh, some of the big ones, the big dollar ones are always fun. You know, Bullet was Bullet really was the you know not only the value of the car but the whole promotion of the car and the just the amount of people when that when it came into the room the guys from the back uh the next day were kind of explaining to me with uh with the way the wi-fi was hooked up they could track how many devices were connected to it from inside the arena (laughs) that's interesting there was 14,000 devices connected to our Wi-Fi in the arena. So that's <laughs> by far the largest crowd we've ever had. Wow. And just the way it went down and to have that many bidders on the car and that big of story, uh, that that one really still goes down as probably the top. Unbelievable. When do you see the same car come back across the block and what are the reasons behind that? So you've, you know, you've sold a particular car and then it comes back and everybody says, well, we know this car, welcome back and we're going to sell it again. Or we're, you know, the buyer that didn't have the chance last time, are you calling, you know, your clientele and say, Hey, it's back or something like that. So what are the reasons a car comes back? I'm sure there can be myriad, but what are you guys finding? It's like I said, said earlier, uh, the biggest reason is the hunt. Uh, people, mm-hmm. they, they tracked the car down. Now they've owned it for a while and it's time to move on to something else. Um, you have people that, uh, you know, you got the guys that speculate a little bit in these cars, you know, that's, that's their hobby is, is to speculate a car. They'll buy it here, take it here and try it that way. So there's, there's, there's always different reasons or it's the other big one is upgrade. You know, sure, I've got, right. I've bought these five cars, but this one special car has finally came available. So mm. I bought this special car. So it's time to, to sell off these cars so I can pay for that. The big one. So. All right. So we've got a, a burning question for you here that I've been waiting to ask. It's leading up to this. Uh-oh. Todd and I encourage our audience to drive their cars. Mm, mm. Okay. So <laughs> we even say you have to give yourself permission. If you're going to buy that special car at whatever price point, You've got to drive that. We want cars to drive. And so at the very high end, we're starting to see various cars that it almost doesn't matter how many miles you put on them or what you do to it. If it's a 1957 Ferrari Testarossa that gets wrecked at the top of the corkscrew at Laguna Seca (laughs) and gets rebuilt to the McLaren F1s. And at this point, it's sort of like just drive it endlessly and it doesn't matter how much road grime or dirt mm. or miles it's got on it it's going to sell for even more money later on when you auction it back off what are some cars that you're starting to see that qualify in that category you you've hit it right on the head those those especially some of those big late model exotics they passed the what you call that new car market that miles matter. They're past mm. that. that mm. That's not going to be part of them. They've reached such a value that, like you said, it doesn't matter if you ball it up. The car <laughs> put, gets rebuilt. Put the car back together and it's just, you know, that chassis and the VIN number is what's worth the money. The rest wow. of it can be figured out. Wow. Um, you know, that's why somebody, somebody once asked me, you know, we were talking about Ferrari GTOs, I think. They're like, how could you go and race that car? I was like, because it doesn't matter what you do to it. It's still going to be worth so much money. 
the mys well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as Paul's saying, I mean, we love we love to encourage people to. I mean, because we have a lot of people that write the podcast, and of course, what we're doing is trying to help them find great cars. Yeah, and that can. I mean, literally, that can be your minivan or your electric commuter or whatever, all the way up to this is the car I've chased my whole life, and we we run the gamut. But we're always saying to people, we want you to drive this stuff. But yet, at the same time, the, I totally understand the concept of I bought this pristine one of whatever, and I don't want to drive it. I love it when the cars just defy that, and they're like, you can drive me. It doesn't matter. That's so cool. We we see a little bit of everything, and you're starting to see you're starting to see more of that. I think we went through a period of ten years where people weren't as much to driving events and you're starting to see events that people are wanting to drive to again so you're starting to see more of those pop-ups i think it's becoming more popular again i mean i'm pointing the fingers at me because early on in my car love and car growing up i just thought all right don't want to put too many miles on it and then i'm completely the opposite now i'm just thinking drive that sucker just but it's a different headspace for me to think what if i own something I can't imagine, honestly, anything above. Pick an exotic and then the the classics that are far mm-hmm. in price above that. I can't imagine continuing this headspace. I, I say it now and I think, <laughs> all right, Paul, would you really do that? Would you really drive an $800,000 something or a $3 million something? And I, how, how could I do this? So I'm pointing the fingers at me. We're hoping that people do this. The people who buy these cars, that they don't just go into the enclosed trailer yeah. and... Go into the air the, the padded room. Whatever. But there's the difference, though. It's also the driving versus the take it to your local Walmart, go get groceries, park between two other vans. This is true. There's a difference. There, there is. is a difference. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at some of these things, and I'm thinking, all right, what if that that hyper-valuable, this yeah. GT350R, one of the first, what if that were just destroyed? Everybody would cry, and then it'd be rebuilt, and it <laughs> it's continues. Back. It's back. So we've also identified cars that, like like we were talking about, it doesn't matter if they get burned to the ground because they'll get rebuilt, like Ferraris. Yeah. The yep. Enzos will remain because they'll just get rebuilt at the factory, yeah. and, and they'll continue, been, yeah. right? That is correct. But you also see the other side of the coin is is becoming more prevalent as we see that our hobby has, in some areas, transcended into, I guess, what I would call art. Sure, um, sure as art pieces instead of as automobiles. So you're mm. seeing you're seeing both sides of that coin. Interesting. Interesting. So on on these lines, I'm very curious I'm always curious about the stuff that's unexpected. What what stories can you think of or what cars can you think of where you were either like, what the heck is that? Because we all have those cars where we're just like, I don't understand that. Or <laughs> yeah. something showed up in the auction block and you thought somebody's auctioning that and then there was this audience for it you didn't expect. Sometimes that's the absolute best for the auction. This is a few years back, but it was, I think it was a, a little 66 Nova L79 car, just a good car, nothing special about it. You know, $75,000 car on its best day. It was a situation. It, it's not like it was a seller that was super wealthy, you know, just a regular guy. You have three people hook up on the car and it does over $200,000. Oh my gosh. Is it a pride thing at that point between the bidders? It's the old adage when two bulls lock horns, and that's why we do auctions for moments like that. Because um, <laughs> you guys are standing back just enjoying the show, right? Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah we're, we're pretty much out of it by that time. It's just the bidders taking care of themselves. <laughs> and for just a, a regular person, that, that that amount of money could change their their livelihood, Yeah, that feels good. 
That's, That's really cool. Good. That's really cool. As far as the future of car auctions, and I, I'm sure that you have Monday morning meetings where you discuss this all the time, we're talking about the future of cars because I've said before that we're in a, in a weird spot at this point in cars where internal combustion engines will continue to be around for a long time, but then there's the pro- proliferation and rise of electric cars and you know future car architecture that seems to be more prevalent in people's minds, even though the market does not bear that out. Mm-hmm. The market only says there's about 1.4% of battery electric cars in the market right now that are sold. That's increasing. But from an auction standpoint, a valuable standpoint as cars you never expected to come back and rise in value, which we have kind of identified as the 40-year rule, what are you seeing as the future of car love and car auctions as things shift, as taste shift, you know, that kind of thing? Less about the method of how it's bid upon, whether it's online or phone or in person, but what are you guys seeing as the future and what are you doing about it? The future changes. So that's the one thing we've always tried to adapt that you don't just steer towards one thing because the future changes so often. No one expected 10 years ago to see uh, six figure Broncos. Uh, <laughs> You're right. No one expected Man. that. You're right. No one, you know, stuff like that. That's, you, there's no crystal ball for that. You just you just ride the waves, and you, that's the one thing our company's been so successful at is we we're always adapting, we're always changing, we're always doing new things, always trying to be uh, innovative in some way or another. When people you know say they want to come work for us, the first question is, are you ready to run away with the circus? Mm. Um, <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. <laughs> That's the first question and everybody stops and looks at you for a second, but that's, that's the real truth of it is, is we're the, uh, we're the modern day Barnum and Bailey. That is funny. I love that description. How many auctions are you guys doing a year? With uh, motorcycles, tractors, cars, road art, uh, we're up to around uh, 15 or 16 auctions a year. Wow, that that is the circus. It sounds like the circus for sure. That's yep. crazy. That really is incredible. I I love hearing about this, and it's something that you know we're always looking and watching, of course. And you've got, like we said, an incredible auction coming up that John Atzbach collection in 2020. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, which many listeners do. We could see some of those cars come back and yeah, you know crazy. be offered again, which is exciting. But Frank, the thing I love the most is what you've said about your accessibility, because I've always had mm-hmm. this impression, and I know there's been inexpensive cars that come across a block. I'll see a Fiat sure, Jolly sure. come by for ten grand. I think I could afford that. I don't really want that, but I could afford <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I just I love the accessibility. You see something, and you're just like, that's the most awful thing I've ever seen, and <laughs> that and happens. Then, and then you see people buy it, and you got to realize that yeah, you think it's awful, but they're like, man, that's cool. I just won this so, at an auction. Could you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So you just you just gotta you just gotta realize that just because it ain't for you uh, doesn't mean that it's not for somebody else. So. Um, that's, that's kind of our philosophy and just seeing the new consignments in. And then all of a sudden you see everybody go, did you see that? And everybody starts chuckling and laughing, but you're like, yeah, you laugh now, but I guarantee it sells Mm. because someone find it different and want it. That's cool. It's great. You guys have created the venue and the format for that. And and the circus, I love that. It's the circus that really, that was unexpected. The one thing I told my wife uh, a couple days ago, this is the most I've slept in one bed since I was 18 years old. (laughs) <laughs> because of travel and just going to events is that yeah. why yeah just just we're always we're always on the road or you got 
you got an auction every two, three weeks and it's, you know, there's, or just pure travel, looking at collections and being on the road. No, I don't, there's definitely no way I've slept in the same bed for, uh, going on 60 days in a row since I was 18. And it sounds like you wouldn't have it any other way too. Is that right? No way. And her, and her comment was, yeah, I know. Can't wait for you to leave. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. I like it. You found what works, though. I think that's awesome. Frank, we're really appreciative of your time and all of your knowledge. It's just fun to hear the insider perspective on this. Thanks, guys. I loved coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. Yep. Bye. See ya. I wasn't expecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just really cool. Thanks again to Frank and Meekum Auctions for taking their time to uh, to explain to our listeners and us. I, I love hearing more about that because I'm always really into the auctions and I love seeing what comes across the block. Like I said, I saw that E30 mm-hmm. M3 mm-hmm. and it seemed like nobody knew or cared what it was and it went for $33,000. But based on what he's saying, it would be interesting to hear what would that car have done at a different location? Exactly. It's just which auction are you at? There, there is a level of dice roll going on here. But I also like the fact that... W- that he's talking about it being accessible, even though all of us, I, myself included, we all think of the upper level stuff. There's always that stuff at the auction yeah, that goes for yeah. not much. And there, and that person, I, I, I bet you the person that gets the thing that none of us believe they bid on is as excited as the guy that, if you will, won the auction with the big buy. Absolutely. You get the same feeling. So thanks again to Meekum. Summer is finally here, and with that comes sunshine and blistering hot car interiors. You know, the leather seats that you thought were a great idea until you scald your legs. Luckily, all you need is a custom sunscreen from our friends at Covercraft. They're awesome. They're amazing. These foldable sunscreens fit perfectly in the windshield of your car and keep your car cooler when you're off enjoying the sunshine. These custom sunscreens come in a variety of colors, and they're an affordable and simple way to keep your car cooler in the summer and protected from damaging UV rays all year long. We swear by our custom sunscreens. I I love it. It's one of our very favorite car accessories. Remember, you can get 10% off your car sunscreen by using the code EVERYDAY right now at Covercraft.com. Or you can follow the link from our sponsors page. Whenever Todd and I are searching for cars, we always start with Auto Tempest. To find the best cars for any budget, you know it's important to cast a wide net and check all the places they might be listed. Now, we used to have to search all different car sites separately, but with Auto Tempest, you can search them all in one place. With Auto Tempest, you can enter your search results and see all the results from all the top car sites at once, plus a bunch of smaller ones you probably didn't think to check. Auto Tempest will help you find your next car, wherever it's hiding. With all the listings in one place, it's a great way to shop around and compare what's out there. So if you're doing your drive homework, you're chasing your dream car, or you're just looking to feed the disease like we always are, head to autotempest.com. All the cars. One search. Jumping into social media questions, first of all, on Facebook from Matthew Emmons asks, how do we decide who drives first for YouTube and for TV? Mm. I don't think anybody's ever asked this. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it actually has to do with us asking each other, saying, all right, you got an opener. You got something to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that happens in the wrap-ups, the closing wrap-ups, wrap-ups, wrap-ups for TV. Sure, 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 yeah. And so sometimes we'll say, hey, I've got a thought to start us off with, and then we'll kind of work from there. Mm-hmm. Other times it's just sort of like, hey, you feel like starting? It just – there's no rhyme or reason, to be I'll, honest. I'll give you a couple of, of reasons that do, that do happen. Typically, when we're recording for television, Paul's in a car first because I'm in director brain. And so I will rig a car oh, sure. and say go. And then sure. Paul will go, and then I'll rig a car for me, and then we'll just start that rotation. But in Fast Flash, you know what it is a lot of times? It literally is, like Paul's saying – who thinks they have an opening thought that yeah. they can say behind the driver's seat? Or who who knows better where we're going? 
because we'll be on a road and it'll <laughs> yeah. be like, okay, so we're going to make, the, you know what, let's do this stretch of road. And one of us is like, I don't get it. I'm sorry. So, sure. so the other one will hop in and drive to that spot. And then the person that, that was driving second goes, oh, all I have to do is drive back because we don't want to communicate during the fast blast about, don't you know where we are? There's the turnout with the thing and the, we don't want to do that. Right. So right. It, uh, often the person that gets in first is the person that knows where they're going. Anyway, that's funny. <laughs> okay. Let's see what else here. Uh, we've got a question that I have to put a hold on. Avi asks on Facebook, Supra 2.0 or Scion FRS or 86 or BRZ, essentially, which of those? Yeah. We have a piece coming, Season 7. We've already shot it. It's called Step Brothers because we took an 86 Hakone edition and put it with the Supra 2.0 when we had that car. Mm. We are making mm. a really cool TV piece. We are probably going to break our typical protocol. And release it on television, and then shortly thereafter, or even at the same time, release it on YouTube as well. So it is coming both places, but we're very, very excited. We've wanted to do this piece for TV for a while, so it's coming for TV. We will have a direct comparison conversation about those two cars, because I, I, I said it here on the podcast originally, that when they first said they were putting a two-liter in this car, in this car I said, so why does the 86 exist? So we're examining that. We shot that very piece. We examined it thoroughly. De definitely coming to TV. Okay, looking at questions here. Tanner G Images asks, what car from any era would we love to see redesigned or updated and brought back to life? Mm. Well, you think you go all the way back. I don't want any of the heavy ones. I don't want the 50s Cadillacs. <laughs> okay, right, I don't want right, the big, yeah. huge boats because sure, sure. those were affected by manufacturing processes at the time mm -hmm. were pretty much just steel. It's steel <laughs> or steel or steel. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. they're very heavy. How about the lightweight ones and the ones that weren't accessible or aren't accessible now? A good example is the replica Porsche 550 Spider. Mm. A good one will set you back forty eight, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, somewhere sure. in there, which is expensive, sure. yeah. but that seems accessible. But how about all those 60s beautiful Ferraris and Maseratis and mm. Astons mm. and those somewhat lightweight, but you know, they were handcrafted, hand-built, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. but they were smaller. Mm-hmm. The Lotus lineup, actually, the 70s Europas, those yeah. are real small. How about yeah, bringing those tiny. back as, you know, something and, and mm -hmm. doing a limited run and updating them? But the light cars that okay. now with lighter weight construction materials and those kind of things. You can make them even lighter. Smaller, yeah. Make them even lighter and see what dynamics change. Uh, uh, launch Estratos. Yeah. Bring that thing oh, back. Oh, man, yeah. You know, small, lightweight, and explore the new era of, all right, if we add, uh, you know, a new powertrain. Mm -hmm. Sure, you know, sure, or sure, a, yeah. You know, different engine, whatever that is, and uh, explore all those. That would be really interesting. I like that. I like that. While we're talking about light cars, I'll go here. Gavin Boy says, what makes the Lotus so awesome? Which cars are comparable? I've talked about this before. I have a Lotus Elise that I've kind of bought an automotive cul-de-sac. A lot of times when we – and what I mean by that is a lot of times when we talk about cars on this show, you buy – a car and that leads to oh this next obvious progression for you as a driver should be this car right the lotus elise is such a moment in time car it's kind of by itself mm. it's very raw it's not like really anything else that's been built the closest cars comparable cars that i can think of they aren't as good the alpha 4c Mm. is in the okay. same thinking, okay. but it's not as good a driver's car. Now, I have heard – now, heard is terrifying because that means the internet was involved. But I have heard there is a kit you can do that you can fix some of the geometry of the front suspension, and it drives like people hoped it would. And now some people prefer it over the Elise. I don't have a 4C. I don't have that kit. I cannot verify. We have driven it many, many times, the 4C this is, on all kinds of roads and situations. We like it on the road. We find it unreliable 
on the track. Mm, yeah. But that is the closest modern car, but it's also not a manual. There is right. a raw connection right. in the Elise that really isn't offered by anything else, and it is a terrible cliché, but I'm going to say it. The terrible cliché that comes out of automotive journalist mouths is, this drives like a go-kart. And in general, no, it doesn't. I don't care what car you're talking about. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. The Elise, that's the closest analog. Mm-hmm. If you've driven a go-kart, you've been karting, that kind of really low, very direct feel, the Lotus feels related to that in a way that is unlike most other modern cars. There's a question over here from Kevin G. Roca, who says, if we had the opportunity to punish each other with a car for a week, what car will it be? Oh, Just so you know, we, we don't do this to each other <laughs> ever. We're not like, this oh, is, I'm going to get him. This is not typically how we operate. I take your point. This yes. is not what our yes, friendship yes. is based on. And you might think that uh, there is something that I could get Todd with. But there really isn't because you think, all right, get him something heavy mm. and doesn't handle real well. Well, that's the Phaeton, and he already owns one. I own one, and I actually find and what I like about it. he likes it. it. Yeah. Uh, there you go, yeah. I would say maybe really super high horsepower, but then we're talking Paganis, and if I get him a Pagani, he'll love it. <laughs> I'm like, sure, bring the power. I don't care. I'll get him something light and cheap, and he'll be like, great, an N.A. Miata, sweet, bring that too. <laughs> so to be honest, I don't know. I think... I, it'd have to be just super ugly and beat down and, I don't know, just kind of not really usable for anything. So how about, you know, like a 50s-something Cadillac or just a boat, a floaty boat that doesn't handle well and doesn't have power and doesn't do anything. And then you'll take it on parade and everybody will go. love it or what's, something. What's funny is I think I may have an answer. You do? You. Uh-oh. It has to be CVT. Oh, yeah. And it might just be the Nissan Murano convertible. That would... Send me into a a, a good a orbit. good week of that for you would you you would not I don't know be a what I deserve to yeah. done to deserve that one that would be horrifying but that that would probably get it done actually <laughs> yeah, I had to think about it Ben Sherman is asking about extended warranties this is this is a difficult area always but I'm going to read this anyway he says is it worth purchasing an extended warranty on a seven or more year old car Ooh. foreign car Ooh. he saw an example that for a 2013 BMW X5 he could pay. $2,000 for a three-year warranty that does not include electrical problems but doesn't have deductibles. Now, a high-mile BMW, or in many cases high-mile German cars, but high-mile BMWs are known to have electrical gremlins. There's a reason that that did not include, is not included in the clause. So that's interesting. What I would say with extended warranties, whether you buy them early or late, Look at things that are known, and you're going to have to dig into the internet, so best of luck to you. Look into what is known to go wrong with the car you have. Mm, yeah. What is a, a regular maintenance thing that, and what that costs. And if the cost of that is less, and this is like, could it be transmission? Could it be driveline? What is the thing mm-hmm. that, you can't see my air quotes, but that car has a thing. What is known to go wrong? How much does it cost? A thing like a Phaeton has a thing. Exactly. But, mm. okay, let's go to the obvious one, the 911 IMS bearing issue. Okay, that's okay. the obvious one. Okay. My point is, what is the known issue with the car, and is the warranty you're chasing, A, going to cover that issue, because it might not, like the electrical issues on this BMW when they've, they've ducked it, and also, is the warranty going to cost less than it would for you to do that thing? Mm, right. At, these are the only ways I know to, to debate whether or not it's happening, because either way, you're dice rolling, honestly. Damon Dickon is down at a popular South Carolina beach, and the trucks here aren't right, he says. 
He thinks he calls it the Carolina squat. It's just not right. It's not right in the head. Yeah. Anything with squat, and then that's just all bad. No. Is, are the are the trucks doing the dog squat thing? I, is this what we're talking about? I, it's the opposite that's, of stink bug. That's I guess. terrible. Yeah. Yes, he says it looks terrible. Not sure you see it on the road when you drive, since you're pointed at the sky. So exactly yeah. right. It's the dog squat. So from your truck. Yeah. Would you rather pick up your son Todd from school and have to borrow a car? Your only two options are the friend with a stance car or the guy with the Carolina squat truck. Which would you rather choose? A mortgage payment on an Uber or a less modified vehicle? Bummer. You know what? My son would probably think the stance car is intriguing. I think, think he'd the, like that. I think the truck he'd think was broken. Because they are. But fine. But if I'm picking him up from school, that's this is the great equalizer. Because <laughs> I, I think he'd look at the stance car and be like, what's going on with this car? This is interesting. I think the, the other one, he, he may think they're both broken for all I know. Yeah. <laughs> no squatting. There should be no. That, that word should not exist involving. in the description of your car. Well, it squats with it. No, stop. Nope. You're, sorry, you're too far already. All right. The only Matt Wong 83 asks if I've ever seen an aftermarket body kit that has added to or improved an original hmm. car's design hmm. sticking to body kit is tough because the car exists the designer settled on that yeah. and they ended there now i do understand that artists could continue to noodle the painting they could mm -hmm. continue yeah, to sure. paint sure. and yeah. keep going landscapers continue to add mm -hmm. flowers and you know filmmakers you continue to noodle things and george lucas has made a career out of it yes. endlessly mm -hmm. yeah. modify things so as far as an aftermarket body kit, no. But tuners who redo the entire thing, mm -hmm. not saying Gimbala is an example, but maybe the Gunter works or the Singers sure. or yeah, yeah, yeah. things like that where yeah, the yeah, entire yeah. car is involved in the process. Mm. The furthest I'll go is tech art. That is the furthest I'll go. Mm, okay. Some things I've seen, like, okay, that kind of improved things. They did a body kit for the 996 Turbo which was actually kind of cool. Mm, okay. But then everything else is too far because I don't need the contrasting stitching on every part of the interior. <laughs> and I don't like those wheels. You know what I mean? So yeah. tech art is as far as I'll go, but maybe just a few pieces from tech art. You know, actually, there's one that I can think of that I've always loved. Granted, it's close to my heart, but brief side rant. Okay. And that is stop it with the rivets. Oh, the rivets. If you're going to go yeah. wide body kit, it's the only way anybody does them now. You do the, you do the, Riveted wide body kit. Yeah, don't like it. And that. I hate that. Yep. But I've seen a few wide body kits that were smooth. And there's one that's available. I haven't seen it in years, but there's one that's available for that 90s era 300ZX that I love. Mm. A wide body kit for that that is that widens the car, front and rear, gives it more of a Coke bottle shape in the middle, and it's fully smooth. Okay, okay. And that actually looked great when done right. But now, anytime anybody wide bodies a car, it looks like we riveted it on, and it often looks like it was done by a child. So I, okay, enough, sure. enough with the rivets. Uh, I'm with you on that. As a matter of fact, I follow Canapa Motorsport, as I'm sure all of you do as well. Bruce Canapa has the shop in California, and he is the 959 Whisperer. He just posted on Instagram a BMW M1 Pro car, which Ooh. is stanced and widened by the race team, pro car, sure, essentially. Sure, sure. Okay, yeah, they yeah. restored it, and it looks great. Mm, now, mm. it's because it's a, special, a specified tool. Sure. A special yeah, yeah. tool for racing. It was made that way. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, I get it. in that sense, yeah, sure. all the wide body stuff, you know, mm, you mm. think, all right, that just looks like a kit. Nope, that actually referenced, mm. you know, whatever 80s race team or that kind of thing. I'm all for. I love that it's rooted in history, and I do like that kind of stuff. Mm. They weren't using rivets, though, even then. <laughs>
One thing you can never have enough of is car stuff, and that's why we love Haggerty Drivers Club. Starting at $45 a year, you'll get six issues of their award-winning Haggerty Drivers Club magazine, chock full of interesting reads and beautiful photos. And you'll get access to members-only live streams on topics like car values, automotive history, and do-it-yourself tutorials. Plus, membership comes with tons of automotive discounts, including a deal of the week, which is always an incredible deal and lasts only a couple of days. If you love cars half as much as we do, this is the club for you. Learn more at Haggerty.com slash Everyday Driver. Wheelman GT says, uh, if you've got a rear-wheel drive car, is it beneficial to have all four tires the same width, or do you only go wider on the rears? First off, Wheelman GT, what is the factory spec? Because some cars, I'll give you an example, the 86, mm-hmm. has it's a square stance. They're all the same tires, mm-hmm. okay? But my Lotus, I'm just staying with cars I own, are two completely different size wheels, let alone the width. Mm-hmm. Totally yep. different size wheels front and rear. Then you have something like, and I, there's a reason I'm bringing this up, the E90 series BMW M3. Same size wheels, but wider in the rear. Mm-hmm. And I bring that right. up because the one that we drove for our Icon BMW film E90 four-door M3, and that owner, Mike, took it and just said, no, I'm going to put a square stance on it and see what it does. Right, right. And it was an improvement. Interestingly enough, sometimes it isn't always. It isn't always. Porsche typically staggers. I mean, you know this. Porsche typically staggers, and I don't know that you want a square stance those. True, and the reason, and I'll say a caveat here, is because the track width front and rear is different. So that's why they do staggered fitments front to rear, and they also do different wheel sizes front to rear. And, but they are also tuning and testing and very much beating yeah. on this to yeah, see yeah. if that's the recipe that they want and what performance are they getting out of the car and what performance at what price point mm-hmm. are they offering the customer. Because they can go really far and give you a race car, but that's not the price yeah. point for this particular model. <laughs> or good for Starbucks, yes. Yeah. So let's dial it back, you know, not quite so aggressive. Where is the car focused in the lineup? Is it like a GTS? Mm-hmm. Great for street, great for track. Mm. So they'll do different things per car. Do you see R.D. Launder here on Instagram? He asked the difficult question. You posted the picture of the three Porsches in your driveway. <laughs> Can't believe that. And then he did track daily crush of those three portions, which is a 986 Boxster S. Is that a manual, by the way? It is. Okay, 986 Boxster S. So first gen, it was a 986, right? First gen? Yeah, yeah. Boxster S, you just don't see those that nice anymore. So that one. Chances 996 C4, Mm -hmm. all-wheel drive 996, and your 981 GTS track daily crush. That's hard. That's hard. I uh, Chance, I with apologies... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to daily that Boxster because that's cool and it looked okay. great All right. and I like it and it's manual and I'm going to take my car on the track Interesting. because it's well suited for track and it's got the Interesting. PK. And unfortunately, Chance is 996. Well, the, pro- the problem with Chance is 996 is you and I know a lot about it, including the fact that it is quite loud. Uh, yes, but, we do. Uh, know but it is all-wheel drive, which makes it a fantastic yeah. all-weather, all-winter, all-situations car. And Chance is fast on track in that y- car. He is very fast. It is a very it, – it's look, this is a C4. It's not some thunderous big 996. He'll hunt you down. He is fast It's on also track. pretty light. It's about the same weight as my car with yeah, an all-wheel Cayman. drive system. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. So, yeah. so that is a really great car. And in spite of that, I'm also crushing it. I would daily <laughs> your GTS, and I would track the Boxster because I like the light rotation of that chassis. Oh, interesting. This okay. is, speaks exactly to who we are right there. Yeah. Interesting. I, I'm sorry, Chance. If Chance were here, <laughs> he would not have crushed his car, just, just to give him not. credit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Probably not. 
Well, how do we feel about pumped in sound? The dad wrench is asking mm. if it adds to the experience or makes it feel inauthentic. I can see your perspective from an authenticity standpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you should never pump in sound. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, in some cars, I don't mind it. I have heard when it's bad. I've heard mm-hmm. a few cars and it's sort of like, all right, can we delete this or yeah, you know, yeah. turn this off or plug the hole or whatever it is? <laughs> that fuse needs to go. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. But many times, sometimes you can't tell. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they've done such a good job and they've mixed it with the resonators and the actual exhaust. And it's it's really nicely mixed. And I don't mind it. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I do enjoy hearing that. And that's part of the sensory experience. So if yeah. it's too far and it's you know too artificial, yeah, I can see that. But it's tough to say across the board, nothing should be piped in. It's really tough to, yeah. to say that as a yeah. sweeping definitive statement. I, I agree with you there. And what's interesting is, and I, I think you may be responding to the super piece. Because I, I, I yeah. side, side rant, by the way, on the super piece. On YouTube, this makes me laugh. On YouTube, if you can't hear the car and the exhaust note, people complain. <laughs> if you don't wind the car out to redline, people complain. Yes. In the super piece, while driving the three liter, I am hooning it. You're sitting in the passenger seat, and at one point, we're pretty high RPM. I've done all, I've checked all the boxes. I'm hooning. I've revved to redline. I'm not shifting too early. And what does YouTube have to say? You really ought to shift, man. We can't hear what you're saying. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway, having said that, because you can't please anyone, this is this is the takeaway from that because that's what happens. However, the audio guy in me appreciates the fact that yes, you need to be able to hear us. All of that to say this, though. You know what's interesting about the Supras? Of course, a BMW was one of the first to really pipe sound in. A couple of things. First off, most cars now have got so much sound deadening and everything that unless the exhaust is really loud, a la Hellcat, mm-hmm. you can't hear it much anyway. Unless it's a GT350 sure. or something like that, sure. you'd be surprised at how little you can hear. Also, on the Supras, I have clean exhaust audio of both of those cars. Neither of them are loud. I'm talking exhaust pipe only. Out the back, yeah, right. Yes, right. they are not loud cars. I bet you if you didn't have it piped in and you were sitting in the car driving, you'd wonder where the exhaust note was. And then people would be complaining, yes. well, they should do something about that. Yes. So this is a really difficult thing to balance. And I really think this is the reason why it's getting piped in at all is because exhausts are not as loud as people think they are anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you contrast that with the fact that with all the sound ending and everything, you can't hear much of it. So they've gone artificial. I don't love it, to be honest, but I drive around in something like the Lotus where you can hear everything, and you kind of go, it's nice in here. Mm-hmm. But you have to pull the fuse, though. <laughs> Agreed. Eric Tombaugh, thanks for writing in. Given the stereotypes around Alfa Romeos and their reliability, if we owned a newer Julia non-quadrifolio, okay. how far would each of us be comfortable living from the dealership network? Well, <clears throat> I will say that by this point, the Julia has been with us long enough where there, if there were going to be a catastrophic meltdown and <laughs> non-buying of this car, it would have happened by now. If there was a thing, yeah, that was known to happen. People are buying them. Yeah. People are driving them. Mm-hmm. You can find them used, even quadrifolios. Yeah. I'll take a quadrifolio. Absolutely. It's a brilliant car. Yeah. You, oh, you get into the upper rev, rev ranges of the power. Mm-hmm. Holy moly. They're great cars. They're quick. They're brilliant to drive. So I will say about as far as we are from the dealership now, which is about 30 minutes, there's a dealership in Salt Lake, Mm. but I'll live an hour. I I wouldn't mind. Honestly, it'd be just fine. I'm, 
I'm less and less concerned the more time passes. Interesting. Interesting. See, I'm, I'm of the demeanor where it's because, look, I drive a Lotus, and who works on a Lotus? No one officially. There's really no one. I mean, I, right. if I wanted to get my Lotus serviced by the dealer, I'm going to the local Salt Lake Ferrari dealer and just envision in your mind what their hourly rate is. So it's what tough. I did was Although you go, have Toyota under, underpinnings, yes. so you're saved a little bit there. It's not like yes. exotic Toyota, but, you know, is But my point is neither is the Alpha. We're in a modern enough time here, parts-wise, that I think if you have a really good mechanic that can kind of work on anything, most of the stuff your Alpha needs would probably be, go to that person just fine. Now, you're thinking about dealer because you're thinking about under warranty stuff. I get it. But I'm just thinking about something's wrong with my car. Who's your local guy? Because he can probably handle it. Mm. All right. Uh, what else you got? Oh, you know what? Combat Conductor, real quick. He said, when will the next ev- Everyday Design episode drop? It's a couple weeks out, isn't it? Uh, it's a couple weeks working on it. I've got uh, the plan in mind. I've got sketches Good. ready to go and commentary ready to go. I, I know what I want to say. So I've essentially got the fix in my mind. Good, good, good. Whatever excited about is. it. And as far as the Everyday Driver TV show, I just want to let you know this as well. The first Saturday of July happens to be July 4th, and we are back on TV on cable then, and we'll follow to streaming, Amazon, et cetera, after that. We've got at least five new episodes coming. We're hoping for six. Mm. Exactly. Travis Whalebro asks if the Porsche Cayenne is good to drive in its own right or only good to drive for an SUV. Definitively, it is good to drive in its own right. Porsche knocked everybody on their ear way back in 03 when they introduced the first Cayenne because people thought, well, you're just you know giving in mm-hmm. to the corporate dollar. You just want the money. And the development that went into it before it was released made it very good on-road and very good off-road, yeah, which yeah. was a rarity. Nobody had really decided to do both because when you build an SUV, you, you kind of have to pick one. At the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Stuttgart, is they're surrounded by Autobahn and de-restricted Autobahn speed, so it has to be able to go very fast. Yeah, yeah. It has to be able to handle well. And I've driven cars that the Cayenne will outdrive. I'd mm-hmm. rather be in a Cayenne, personally. And I, I think... Porsche has done a really great job in focusing the Cayenne, which makes it a lot different than many SUVs on the road. Okay. You pay for that. Though. As the non-Cayenne owner, I will give you that, all of that. I will say this as the guy that likes little tiny stuff with the exception of my Phaeton. Yes, I I really like driving my wife's Cayenne. Every time I pick you up and I'll let you drive it, you comment to me how much you're impressed by it. And it's got 130,000 miles on it. And it's 10 years it. old. Exactly. So it drives really well in its own right. It I would say this. I am always impressed with it, driving it, thinking about how large and tall it is. I'm always like, this drives great. I personally would always rather be in a sedan, but that's me. Well, of course, but we're not comparing them to lightweight things. It's, no, but but I'm just saying as an sedan. SUV, as it I'm is. just saying a sedan, I'd rather be in a sedan generally. Sure. But now I, I will admit rear-wheel drive sedan, not front-wheel. Anyway, the point is it really is an interesting line blurring car and then the macan takes out another step where Mm -hmm. it claims to be a cuv and really is a hatch so where does it go Mm -hmm. guys thank you so much for your questions as always we really appreciate it we are off shooting a tv episode and looking forward to bringing you season seven and uh yeah continuing to bring you the prior seasons on youtube as well so that is now coming all to youtube eventually in the future so we're, we're excited to do that Keep your questions coming. Write to us with your debates, everydaydrivertv at gmail.com. Car conclusions, topic Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. Drop us a line as well. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Cheers, everyone. (laughs) 